Hello, church. Good to see you again this evening. So tonight we're in um, John chapter 20, and it's the chapter where we find out that Jesus has risen and all the events that surround his resurrection. And so we're going to start off this evening by simply singing a song that talks about he lives. I invite you to stand and let's worship together. Where he lay, see the stone rolled away. He is risen, he is risen, he's alive. See his hands, see his feet, touch his scars and believe. He is risen, he is risen, he's alive. Oh, he's alive. All honor and power are His. All glory forever. Amen. Jesus lives. Hear the shackles breaking free. Hear the song of the redeemed. He is moving. He is moving. Take this freedom, take this love. Can you feel it rising up? He is here, he is here, he's alive. He lives, all honor and power are here. All glory forever finished it is finished 
risen, he is risen, he's alive. I got
that king stepped out of eternity and into time and space. He died a sinner's death, but he didn't stay there. He rose again. The moon and stars, they wept. The morning sun was dead. The Savior of the world was fallen. His body on the cross, His blood poured out for us. The weight of every curse upon
Jesus for your blood. Thank you that through that blood, each one of us can be redeemed, become children of God. And to know you personally, we also thank you that soon and very soon you will be returning as our King and Lord forever and ever. He who was before there was light Walked across the pages of time He who made every living thing Behold Him He who heard humanity's cry Left His throne to wake as a child 
God, thank you for allowing us to come into this place and to still our hearts, still our minds, still our soul, and to behold you. We've been reminded that you are our king. been reminded that you came, stepped into time, became just like us. To take our place on the cross. And so we worship you and we thank you that you are the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. And we have bowed our knee at your footstool this evening to behold you, to be reminded that you are our God. It doesn't matter what the circumstances of our life were today, yesterday, or what they're going to be tomorrow. You are always Lord, always Savior. You are our God, and we worship you and adore you. Now, as we look into your word, may we continue to see you as you truly are. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Amen. Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to John chapter 20. We'll be finishing up John's gospel next week. And then following that, uh, because of the way that we've been studying through the Bible and and utilizing our, our inductive studies on Sundays, we're going to be going to Galatians next. And we'll be moving into the um, pastoral epistles and, and taking a look at what God's got for us in those. It'll be just an amazing time. I was thinking today about you know when we started this journey, and I thought we'd do it in seven years. Well, we didn't quite make that. And that's okay. But I looked at the map and, and kind of figured out how things are. And so, Lord willing, March of 2024, we'll be finishing the book of Revelation. Don't count on it. <laughs> we may take a little bit longer in going through that, but we'll get there. If the Lord doesn't come back first and, and, and teach us through this. Tonight, we're going to be taking a look at the resurrection. Now, think about this for a minute. What are the implications... If Jesus was never to have risen from the dead, just, just, just let your mind think on that. If Jesus had, had died, and he did, and he died for the sins of the world, and he did, but if he never rose again, what would the implications be? Your sin debt would be paid for, but there would be no resurrection of life. The penalty would be atoned for, but there would be no hope for life after death. You would be forgiven. And so, because that is not what God had intended, we have to have both the, the atonement and the death in addition to the resurrection and the victory that Christ would have over death. 
a bodily resurrection. And there would be those today that would deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Think about that and the implications of that. Think about the, if, if we remove all of that. Well, Paul probably said it the best in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 to 19, where he writes, And if Christ has not raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testify against God that He raised Jesus, or He raised Christ, whom He did not raise. In fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, then we are all men most to be pitied. We think about that. If Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, then we're believing a lie. And, and then at the end of the day, it was all for naught within that. And so as John is writing this particular gospel, he is writing this evidence so that you will believe. And tonight we're going to take a look at what does it take for you to see and believe, to be able to have that faith? He wants you to understand that you can see and believe. And so John's resurrection account starts with Mary and ends with Mary. It's in what's called an inclusio. He utilizes Mary in the beginning and he utilizes Mary at the end. And he starts with Mary's doubts and concerns and despair. And he shows how that doubt, despair... And condition turns into joy within that and within this account. The one thing that we need to make sure is we are not worshiping an empty grave, are we? We're, we're worshiping a risen Savior. The empty grave is just evidence of the risen Savior. So we're going to dive right in. And let's take a look at John chapter 20, beginning with verses 1 and 2. And we last had Jesus on the cross and, and then taken off the cross and buried by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. Now, again, John is not intending on writing a full, inclusive, detailed account of all of the resurrection. He's painting a portrait. Why? So that the readers would be able to see and understand. And keep in mind, John is writing this at a later date, looking backwards with a specific message. And he starts with Mary at the grave. Well, it was the first day of the week. It's interesting. It's the first day of the week Mary came to this tomb. Early on a Sunday morning... It's important to understand that we see that John writes the first day of the week, not the third day of the burial. Why? Because he wants to write about the new beginning. He's not focusing on the death, but he's going to focus on the resurrection. And the resurrection is the launch of that new life within this. He's not memorializing the death, but he's turning our eyes towards the resurrection, towards the hope. 
Now we know based on the other accounts that Mary and the other women would come to the tomb before it was light. And they were coming to the tomb to finish the job that the men obviously just didn't get done right. They had, it was a quick job. Joseph and Nicodemus, bless their heart, they did what guys do. They wrapped a body and they get it in the tomb because Sabbath was coming. We know that Mary was across from the tomb taking a look and she, she saw the right tomb in the right place. But because of the Sabbath, they didn't have time. So as the Sabbath would end on Saturday, at sundown on Saturday, they would go to the stores, go to the market, get the amount of spices that were necessary, and then to come back and to do it right. To give them a proper anointing and a proper burial according to the Jewish custom. And because they want to be able to show their devotion. Now along the way though, we also know based on the other accounts, they had a little discussion. How are we going to roll the stone away? we got these women that are coming and they're like, mm, there's going to be a big stone there. How are we going to move it? And they had no clue that the religious leaders, the Sadducees, had gotten together with the Romans and put a couple of Roman guards in front. They had no clue. So in their mind, they have an obstacle. They have the obstacle of the stone. In their mind, what are they expecting to see when they get to the tomb? A closed tomb. A stone in front of the tomb. That's what they're expecting to see. Not the Roman guards or anything else. John doesn't make a mention of the earthquake. He doesn't make a mention of the angels. Why? Because he's writing the narrative that you will see and believe. And so he's staying focused on that. But Matthew does give us that account in Matthew 28, 2-4. And you can read it where the angels had come, the tomb was open, the guards fell and they ran away. John just sees Mary. And what, is, what does he want us to see? Imagine, Mary's coming up with the other women and she sees the stone rolled away. And what is her first inclination? What's her first assumption? Somebody came and stole the body. Grave robbers were very common in the Near Eastern culture at that time. They would come and, and they would steal, they would... They would raid the tombs, and they would take whatever they want. Mary's already grieving. She's already been at the cross. And she comes because she wants to grieve properly over her Lord. And the tomb is open. What does Mary not do? She doesn't go into the tomb. She sees the circumstances and assumes the worst. Do people do that? Are people moved by circumstances and they, they go right to the negative and they assume the worst? Regardless of the fact that Jesus promised that I will die and I will rise again on the third day. She doesn't go to the words of Jesus that said, I will rise again on the third day. What does she do? She, in her grief and in her humanity, she just goes to the worst. They've stolen the body within this. Now again... All throughout John's Gospel, we've been seeing sign after sign after sign so that we can believe. The open grave is a sign that the words of Jesus have come true. But she doesn't see it that way. Have you ever been in a state of grief, sorrow, suffering, where God was revealing Himself very clearly, but you couldn't see it because of your grief, sorrow, and suffering? God was evident, and He was there. 
but you couldn't see it because you were blinded by whatever human condition and emotion that was there. And so within this, the stone is rolled away. She jumps to the conclusion, not that Jesus is the risen Savior, but thieves had come in. Not that Jesus had been out, but that the, the body had been stolen. She had no clue. So what does she do in verse 2? She runs. She runs back to the disciples. And what is the message that she carries from the open tomb? Notice. So she ran and she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, which would be John, whom Jesus loved, because he never uses his name, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. How does she know that? She never went into the tomb to see. But she assumed. She made this assumption and her message was based on a false assumption within this. And so within this, this, this idea, and keep in mind, bless Mary's heart, the idea of self-resurrection was brand new. Nobody had ever done that. So she was going to have to act on faith and, and, and her faith stumbled. There will be times when our faith will stumble. There will be times when our faith will stumble based on circumstances. And as I said earlier, the idea of grave robbers, that was a common thing. It was something, in fact, it will even be used as an excuse within that. In fact, in Matthew 28, 13 to 15, when the Roman soldiers went and they told the religious leaders that the angel came and, and, and the body was gone, they said this, You're to say, his disciples came by night, stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money as they did and been instructed. And the story was widely spread among the Jews to this day. How do the religious leaders counteract the fact that Jesus rose again? They developed this lie that the body was stolen by the disciples. And what did they say to the Roman guard? Who would have been guilty for losing a body. We'll pay you off and we'll, we'll, we'll win Pilate over. It'll be okay. I find it ironic, though. The religious leaders that should have been looking for the Messiah, that should have been looking for Jesus all along, hears from these Roman guards about an angelic appearance and the body resurrecting, being gone, not seeing Jesus, but being gone. And they have to develop a lie in order to, to dismiss the resurrection. It's amazing to me the length that people will go to try to dismiss the obvious. To not really see the obvious and believe. When God makes it so simple for us to believe in these signs. Well, as the account goes in verses 3 through 10, Peter and John run to the tomb. Notice it says this. So Peter and the other disciple, we know that to be John, went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two of them were running together. And the other disciple, John, ran faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Stooping down and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on the head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up and placed by itself. And so the other disciple, John, who had first come to the tomb, then they entered in and he saw it and he believed. 
For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And so the disciples went away again to their own homes. It's interesting because the second scene is another scene back at the tomb. Now, the disciples, Peter and John, they go running to the tomb. You've got to love how John writes. Peter's impulsive and he's reactive. John is kind of the thinker. They're both running together in the tomb. But John doesn't want to brag, but he says, I got there first. I beat him. And John, being the thinker, says, I'm not going to go running in there. I'm going to look first. What does Peter do? You beat me here, but I'm going in first. Boom, and he goes right in. And he blows right by him within this. Now, keep in mind, Mary only saw an open tomb. And what did she believe? Somebody stole the body. Doesn't believe the resurrection. Somebody stole the body. Peter and John get to the tomb. They saw the same evidence, verses 5 through 7. Stooping down, looking in, they saw linen wrappings lying there. And they saw the face cloth or the face shroud folded up and put off to the side. I love the fact that Jesus made his own bed. But it's amazing on the linen wrappings because the way that it's described is as if the body had gone through the linen wrappings and they were just laid in place. So the cloth was, was there as if the body transformed through the linen wrappings, but the face cloth was folded up and put off to the side. Now what does that tell us? It tells us something very interesting. That Jesus rose and was alive both physically and spiritually. That both aspects were very true about a physical resurrection because spirits can't fold up cloths. We think about this idea and what they did. John, who stooped down and looked, saw the stone rolled away, stooped down and looked inside, saw the wrappings. Peter saw the wrappings, seeing the same scene. But what are their responses? It's interesting because in verse 8 it says, So the other disciple being John who had got to the tomb first, saw, and what? Believed. It doesn't say Peter believed. Two people seeing the exact same thing, two different responses. John believed. says that he believed. In fact, it's interesting because John, as he's writing this from a, from a look back, he says, and those disciples, myself included, didn't really understand the Scripture. What does that tell us? That tells us that it takes a basic level of faith to believe. They didn't understand the Scripture. What Scripture? Psalm 16.10 For you will not abandon my soul to shield, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Paul later, or Apollos would later write in Hebrews, now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What was the hope for? The resurrection. Based on what? The words that Jesus spoke. He had risen, just as he had said. John believed that, but Peter didn't. Peter went and they went back to their own houses. 
And I thought about this. Is it possible to believe in something that you can't see? Absolutely. Is it possible to believe in something you don't understand? Yes. Isn't that the essence of faith? These disciples are looking at an empty tomb, wrappings that they know belong to Jesus. They're still there. But no body. And all they have is the Word and the testimony of Jesus. And that's what they believe in. Within this. In fact, Jesus wasn't quiet about the fact that He would rise again three days later. There are eight different references throughout the Gospels that Jesus would rise on the third day. Eight different times He says it. He wasn't quiet. He, he, he made it known. For example, in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. As they were walking on the road to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. They were amazed and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered into the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, being the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, scourge him, kill him. Note, three days later he will what? Did it happen as he said? Absolutely. Question. If God was faithful to the words concerning the resurrection of Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection, and all of these things, if he was faithful to those words, will he not be faithful to the words that he's given to us for future events? For your resurrection and mine? Absolutely. Will He not be faithful for the second coming and the judgment of the world? If God was faithful in the past, and He is, He will be faithful in the future. That's because He's God. And there is, there is no change in Him. And so Jesus, eight different times, says, I'm going to rise again on the three day. Do you think the disciples would get it? They caught Him as a surprise. Wow. Never saw that one coming. And I'm sure Jesus is going, really guys? I told you. And he rose again. The chief priests and the Pharisees even heard Jesus say, Now on the next day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. Notice that even the chief priests and the Pharisees knew this. Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I will rise again. Why didn't they believe? They got the same information. Why did the chief priests and the scribes not believe Jesus in the resurrection? And they chose to create a deception. Why? Because they didn't want to believe. There was no desire to believe. There will be people that will look at Jesus and look at the resurrection and look at the gospel message and hear evangelism and will respond. And there will be people that will hear the exact same thing and will totally deny it and reject it. That is human will. Should that change the message? Absolutely not. 
The tomb is empty for everybody to see. The resurrection is true for everybody to see. And whosoever will see and believe will be saved. It doesn't change. The message doesn't change. I think it's interesting to note, though, that John notes his own faith. And his faith wasn't in the empty tomb. His faith was in the words that Jesus had spoken which is imperative for us to understand. When we go to Israel next year, we're going to see the empty tomb. But why are we going to Israel? Not because we want to make sure that Jesus is not in the tomb. We want to go because the Word of God is true and we're going to read the Word of God at the tomb because our faith is in the Word of God. It's in the truth. And so within this, we see that it is that simple faith is it that simple for everybody? No, not always. There are some people that actually have to see to believe. There are those people that need a little bit more evidence in order to have that faith. And that's okay. That's part of who they are. And I love the fact that Jesus will meet them where they're at to reveal himself. Because not everybody believes the same way. Think for a moment about your testimony and how you came to faith. Is your testimony and how you came to faith identical to every other believer, or is it unique to you? It's unique to you. Why? Because God knows what it takes for you to believe. And He reveals Himself to you in that context. For example, we'll read about Thomas. You guys know Thomas? Doubting Thomas? He's the guy that showed up a week late. After all, the disciples had already seen Jesus. says, I'm not going to believe unless I touch the nail prints in His hand. In fact, in John 20, verse 25, it says, So the other disciples were saying to this Thomas, We have seen the Lord, but He said to them, Note, unless I see in His hands the imprint of His nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into His side, I will not believe. Some people it takes that. Some people it takes a little bit more. As I said, Peter's faith wasn't as solid as John's. He went away wondering. In fact, in Luke 24, 12, said this, But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping down, he saw the linen wrappings. And he went away to his home, marveling at what happened. That word marveling means to wonder. I don't know. Is it real? Is it, did he really rise from the dead? Then I got to thinking, well, why? why? Why did John have that reaction and Peter didn't? Perhaps it had something to do with Peter's action at the palace when he denied Jesus. Could he have been wrestling with his own guilt for denying Jesus and being the cross? Could he be in that place where he was just so, so doubting what was going on? Did this really happen? We don't know. We don't know what the case was. We know for the other women, based on the other narratives, that the angels appeared to the other women, and then Jesus would tell them. And notice when the angels came and appeared to the women, they said, go tell the brethren, and the text says, and Peter. Specifically. Why? Because Peter was wrestling. Some people, when presented the gospel, will accept the Lord right away. 
Some people, when presented the gospel, will have to wrestle with it for a while. Some people will have to see evidence or sign to believe. Why? Because everybody's faith journey is different. It's personal. And how God reveals it to you. And so we, we need to understand and, and, and be patient with people within their faith journey. We know that, that Jesus would even appear to Peter in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. Paul would write to the church about the, the post-appearance accounts. He says, and he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. According to Paul's account in the post-appearances account, that Peter got a private audience with Jesus post-resurrection. Why? Because that's what Peter needed. You know what? God knows what you need. God knows what you need and meets you where you're at. Whether it's in a, a, a group like with the women who saw this evidence or the disciples who saw the evidence or it's one-on-one with Peter. We know that, that God meets us where we're at and reveals Himself to us. Why? Because He's a personal God. He will meet with you personally. And whether you're here and wrestling with it or you're watching online and wrestling with it, if you pray and say, Lord Jesus, reveal yourself to me. Speak to me. He will. One of the the greatest ways that God will speak to you is through the Word. And then He will also speak to you through circumstances. As the Word is applied in your life. And then that relationship, that, that risen Lord becomes very real to you. Well, so this all takes place. Peter and John, they get there, they see these things. The women are coming, coming back and they're going. But Mary, she goes back to the tomb, verse 11. She's got to see for herself. It says, but Mary was standing outside of the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. And when she said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, No, woman. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to him and said to him, in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that He has said these things to me. So in this account, we come back to Mary. Now what does Mary do? She goes back to the tomb. Why? Keep in mind, what did she do? She gets to the tomb. All she sees is it's empty. She runs to Peter and John, tells them they stole the body. Peter and John go... She goes back to the tomb and she's in deep grief. Does she see the same open tomb? 
Yes, hasn't changed. But what does she do different? She goes into the tomb. Is she still assuming that somebody stole the body? Yes. Still assuming that someone stole the body within this. She's at this grave in this hopeless place. And she's lamenting with great sorrow in this place. This grieving. Why? Didn't she hear the same words that the disciples heard? Didn't she hear the same words that John heard? Absolutely she did. But she was so overwhelmed with grief. As a pastor, I do a lot of gravesides. I do a lot of funerals. And I've watched believers have different reactions at gravesides and at funerals. There are some believers that will go to the grave of a beloved one who is, who's died in the Lord. And they'll be sorrowful, but not as one who sorrows as has no hope. Why? Because the words of God have comforted them to they know that absent from the body is present with the Lord. And I've watched other believers come to the same kind of circumstance where the person that died, died in the Lord, and they come to that tomb, and they are mourning with great sorrow. Why? Because they're struggling with their faith. They're not convinced of the resurrection hope of their loved one, or even for themselves. Everybody has these different reactions to this. And Mary is lamenting Jesus' death, but also feeling very violated because the, the body was taken away. And she gets into the grave. She gets into this tomb. Now keep in mind, tombs in Jewish culture are caves. This particular one was unfinished. If, if, if it's true that it is uh, the garden tomb... Gordon's Calvary, there's an unfinished slab and then a finished slab in a waiting room. You go in and it's there. She goes in and what she was expecting to see was not what she expected to see, but she sees angels, one at the head and one at the foot where Jesus would have been. Now, Mark describes angels on the outside of the tomb. Matthew describes an angel that came in and rolled away the stone. Luke describes two angels that were there. Who is right? I don't know. I wasn't there. But they all give these accounts of the angels being present. But John shows messengers inside for whom? For Mary. For Mary. To bring her comfort. And she has this unique angelic experience that is there, different from the other women. In fact, the other women were encountered with this saying from the angels in Luke 24, 5. The women were terrified. They bowed their face to the ground and the men said, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Now, again, this is something that's interesting. Do you realize angels learn from you? Angels are always watching. And angels are watching believers and how we respond to things in life. And imagine these angels being sent by God the Father. I want you to go down there. And I want you to engage with these followers. And the angels are like, why are they so sad? Why are they so sad? He's alive. Why are you looking for the living one among the dead? He's not here. Within this. He's risen. But they're learning about these human emotions. They ask Mary, why are you weeping? 
Now, I can tell you this. If you go to a funeral service to someone who is mourning and lamenting great loss, and you walk up to them and you say, why are you crying? You better watch out because you're probably going to get punched. I was talking with somebody even today who's still in a, a state of grief. And he says, you know, I'm really struggling with this because people are telling me I just need to get over it. And it doesn't work that way. These angels, though, bless their hearts. Why are you weeping? Mary's looking for the dead body, but, the, but he's not there. And notice, <laughs> this, is, this is comedy. Mary's weeping. She's talking to angels. And they say, why are you weeping? And they say, because they took away my Lord. Mary, they're angels. But maybe they didn't look like angels. Maybe they looked just like normal humans that were just sitting there. But the lesson is, what is she fixed on? Loss. She's fixated on loss. And she can't see life because she only sees loss. Because she doesn't fully embrace the resurrection of life, all she sees is death. As a Christ follower, what should we fix our eyes on? Life. Why? Because we have a resurrected Savior. Jesus has risen. And He's risen indeed. So the angels say this, Mary, why are you weeping? She says, well, I'm looking for my master. Where is he? She turns around. And then, not only did she not recognize that she was talking to angels and they ask him, but she doesn't even recognize Jesus. Whether she was trying or she's in deep grief or deep sorrow or, or any of these conditions that are there, she doesn't recognize Jesus. And Jesus asked the same question that the angel said, woman, why are you weeping? Let me ask you a question. Why are you weeping? Wait a minute, they just asked that. But he adds to it. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now, supposing that he was a gardener, she says, tell me where you laid him. You must know. She's fixated on one thing. Where is the dead body? Mary, why are you looking for a dead body? Because you, you don't, you're not embracing the resurrection hope. And then he does something that is amazing. He speaks her name. Mary. She heard her name from the mouth of the one whom she loves. She was called by name. And the eyes of her understanding were open. And she says, Rabboni, teacher. It was the connection that was there. Jesus revealed Himself to her in the deepest level of grief that she was at by her name, which is something that is amazing to me because that is exactly what Jesus does. He will find us in the deepest, darkest pit that we find ourselves in and He will reveal Himself by calling us by name. One simple word. And if we embrace that word, we recognize our risen Lord. Do you remember when Jesus called you by name? Do you remember when He called you out of the darkness of the condition that you're in? Mary does what anybody would do. 
She grabbed a hold of him with a death grip. <laughs> says clinging to him. She, she, she's like, you, you, you left once. You're not leaving again. I got you now. I get it. You know, I can imagine Jesus trying to shake her off. You know, come on. Mary, stop it. Stop it. It's getting awkward now. We got it. We got, I got to go. I'm not meant to stay here. And we look at this and what was Jesus saying? I'm not meant to stay here forever. I got to go to the next level of my ministry. I'll be here for another short time, but I've got to go. She wanted things as they were, but things weren't going to be as they were because Jesus' mission was done. And now he has to return to the Father. He says, I have to go to give that life. Yet, I'm going to go and you're going to have a new relationship. Notice the new relationship. He says, stop clinging to me. I have yet to send to my Father, but go tell my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father. Notice how the relationship changes. Your Father. My God, your God. Prior to the crucifixion, could Jesus say that? No, because the relationship was broken. But now, because sins have been paid for, man can be in relationship with God. He has that new relationship. My Father and your Father, you can be brought into the family of God. Notice Jesus' priestly prayer in John seventeen eleven. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, the name which you gave me, and that they may be, note, one even as we are one. Jesus' work was done so we could be restored into that relationship. Mary, I, I got to go, but it's not forever. Mary returns to the disciples in verse 18 with a different message. What was the first message that she ran to the disciples with? Do you remember? They what? Stolen the body. Now, what is the message that she brings to them? I've seen Jesus. What changed? What changed? Well, one, she went into the tomb. But it wasn't the tomb that she put her faith in. It was in Jesus calling her by name. And she said, he's alive. Why? Because I know personally he's alive. I believe. Three different people, well more, more than that, many different people, but three in, this, in John's account saw and believed. Did it stop there? Nope. There was more to come that day. It was on the first day of the resurrection, verses 19 to 23. That Jesus would appear even more. And so later on that day, so when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And he said this as he showed them both the hands and the side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And so Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I also send you. And then he said this, and he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive sins of any of their sins, they have been forgiven of them. And if you retain the sins, any of them, they've been retained. So, first day of the week is the res it's Sunday. It was the first day of the work week. But it was the first day of the week, and it was Sunday. 
Resurrection Sunday, it would be called the Lord's Day. We worship on Sundays. Why? Because it's the Lord's Day. It's a resurrection day. That is different. We know John will confirm that in Revelation 1.10. He says, I was in the Spirit, note, on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice of the sound of the trumpet. This became the day for the church. The Jews would still celebrate Sabbath, but they would also, the Christian Jews would celebrate Sabbath and then the Lord's Day. And eventually the church would just worship on the Lord's Day within this. Now, by this time, they were aware of the, that Jesus was not in the tomb. Many of them had not seen Jesus. They had, and within this, and you got you to love this. And this is where I think God's got this huge sense of humor. He waits for the perfect time. So where are the disciples? In an upper room. Behind a locked door. Why? Scared of the Jews. Why? Because the body's gone. Now the rumor's going around. The disciples stole the body. We're in trouble. Word's gotten out. And they're in the midst of the room. They're hiding from the Jews. We heard that Jesus had risen from the dead. Peter and John said so. Mary says so. The woman heard it from the angels. A lot of weird things are happening. And they're in terror. And then all of a sudden, Jesus appears in the midst of the room. Can you imagine? I'm here. Would that freak you out? Oh, yeah, just so that you know it's me. Here's the holes. You want to touch them? I love the fact that Jesus met them where they were at and gave them what they needed to be able to see the evidence. And he says, Shalom, peace be with you. Why? Because Jesus is the Prince of Peace. It's a peace that I give you that will guard or garrison your hearts and your minds. And he shows them the hands and the feet and the side for the disciples of resurrected body. We know Thomas isn't there. If we look at Luke's account in Luke 24, 38-39, he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do you doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, see my feet, it is I myself, touch me and see. Note, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Back to the original question. What would happen if Jesus did not physically rise again? Only in spirit. There would be no hope for physical resurrection for us. When you rise again, you will get a new body. Amen. I wake up every morning and go, Lord, I'm ready for my new body. And Jesus says, come and touch and see. He also, note in Luke's account, 24, verses 41 and 43, asked for food. While they still couldn't believe it was because of their joy and amazement, he said, have you got anything here to eat? Four by four, animal style. Thank you very much. No. They gave him broiled fish and they took it and he ate before them. Spirits don't eat food. You can't touch a spirit. Physical resurrection. That was there. Not just, not just a spirit, a physical body. The totality of his person, body, soul, spirit. Complete resurrection from the dead. Because the resurrection changes everything. How does that happen? I don't know. Other than the fact that Paul will speak of the mystery of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. 
says this, But some will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which is sowed doesn't come to life unless it dies. And then in verse 54, he says, But this perishable will have put on, no, the imperishable. And this mortal will have to put on the immortality. Then comes about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. I had the privilege to go today to a hospital room and go pray with a saint that is about to graduate. She's in her late 80s. She got COVID pneumonia. Her husband graduated to be with the Lord four years ago. And she's about to join him. And I look at that body that's laying in that bed. And I'm praising God because when she goes to heaven, she's not taking that body with her. She's going to be resurrected. And her husband is going to be there waiting for her. Along with a son that they lost a number of years ago. That's the resurrection hope. A body that is new and renewed. Without pain, without sorrow, all of these things. The disciples saw the risen Lord. Now there's going to be a time when every believer will see the risen Lord. We'll see Jesus. We'll see Him as the Lamb that was slain. We'll see Him there. And we'll be reminded of what this resurrection cost. But we're going to see Him face to face. And we're going to be given that new life. I can tell you this. This body of sin and, and death that we are stuck in is not your forever home. We get to go to be with the Lord. And we trade up. Which is a good thing. Well, within that, that night of sorrow and fear was turned to joy. Why? Because they saw Jesus' scars. What do you see when you think about the scars? The nail-pierced wrists. The, 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 the scars that would have been on his head. What do you see? I see a sacrifice that gives me life. John points out and he says, we saw the scars and we believed. If you look at verse 21, he goes on and he says, So Jesus said to them, Peace I leave with you. As my Father sends me, so I send you. Why does Jesus keep us around once we believe? You know, it would be one thing. It's like, okay, Lord Jesus, I believe in you as my Lord and Savior. And you transform my life and you cause me to be born again. And I see you. Okay, let's go. And he says, no, you're going to stay there for a while. Why? Because you see and believe, now take that message and go tell it to other people. As the Father sent me, so I send you. The disciples will go through three different commissionings of Jesus. This being the first one, he says, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. To do what? To tell people about the resurrection. That's the goal. In John 17, 18, it says, As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. You have a goal, a mission, to go and share the message of the resurrection. Now again, Thomas wasn't here. Thomas will show up a week later. But we think about these commissionings. This is the first one. Later on, there will be a commissioning in Matthew 28, when Jesus will send them out and go make disciples. And then there will be a final commissioning in Acts chapter 1. Go. 
But Jesus does something here that's interesting. He says he breathed, he says he breathed on them and says, "Receive the Holy Spirit within them." Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, again, this is this is something that a lot of people will wrestle with. They argue with. They say, okay, well, you know, is it, is it a double filling? Do they get the Holy Spirit here? Do they get the Holy Spirit a second time? Um, do they get it a third time, a fourth time? And, and, and all of these other things that are there. And again, as I said, there's been much debate by some really good Bible scholars and expositors that try to harmonize this passage that is here in John 20 and then also the passage that is in Acts within this. What do we know? We know that Jesus breathed on them and gave them life. Do you remember when the first time was that God actually breathed on man? Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. says this, Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The text says they saw and they believed... And Jesus breathed on them new life. Now they were given life. But they weren't empowered for the work of ministry until Acts 1. He said, go and wait for the promise of the Father so you'll be empowered for mission. And so within this, there is a a living being created, born again within this. They would be empowered for the work of ministry to go and be those disciples, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, within this. And it's reminiscence of Ezekiel's prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 5. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you so that you may come alive. And so we have this unique experience where these disciples are receiving the taste and the, the the Holy Spirit to come to that life, but they won't receive the empowerment until the baptism of the Holy Spirit at Acts chapter 1, 8. Now, this is a unique experience that happens because the Spirit hadn't come yet. What happens with believers today? Believers today receive new life and the Holy Spirit at the same time. Simultaneously. Why? Because the Spirit of God is in the world and in the lives of the believers. A single filling. An empowerment for that work. Later on, Paul will talk about the fact that, and we'll get into it, about being filled with the Spirit. And it's a present active imperative, which means you're going to be being filled or overflowing with those works where the Holy Spirit will work in and through you. Within that. Not a second filling. So we look at this this experience. And so in the new birth of the church, the church's birth right now, in the same manner that Adam was given life, so the believers at this time are given life, but they're empowered later for that gospel mission in Acts 1.8, as Jesus is revealing himself to them. Now, the difficult thing is now you've got the skeptic. We get to Thomas. In verses 24 to 29, it says, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, or twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said, Unless I see with my hands, imprint the nails, and put my finger in the place on the nails, put my hand in his side, I won't believe. After eight days, the disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came to the doors, having been shut, and stood in there. He said, Peace be with you. 
And he said to Thomas, reach in here, put your finger and see my hands and reach here in your hand and put it into my side. And no, do not. It's a it's a prohibitive. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who do not did not see me and yet believe. So we look at this last account of this one who has to see. What does he see? He sees the risen Lord. Now, again, in my sanctified imagination, I'm laughing. Why? Because the other disciples, the ten that are sitting in there, we know one's dead, Judas. So the other ten are sitting in there. Thomas is there being all smart-alecky. I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to believe until he touches hands. And then Jesus pops into the middle of the room and the other disciples are going, watch this. This is going to be good. We saw this last week. And Jesus comes up to him and he says, really, Thomas? Right here. And what does Thomas say? My Lord, my God. My Lord, my God. Blessed are you, Thomas. You see and you believe. But even more blessed are those that believe that don't see. That's faith that is there. And, and so within this, we see this. And, and keep in mind, Thomas was a realist. He was a pessimist. In fact, in John 11, when they were talking about Lazarus, Thomas is the one who said, let's go, that we'll do, go die with him. He was kind of a realist. And there are those that really need that evidence. But I love the fact that he sees this. And he believes. And in the same way, there are so many people that they even pray that way. Have you ever met somebody that like prayed, but not really in faith? Says, yeah, I believe, but I really don't believe. I think about this time in Acts chapter 12, 13 to 15. When the church was praying, gathered together to pray for Peter to get out of jail. You remember the account? Lord, please get Peter out of jail. Please let him out of jail. They're having a prayer meeting to get Peter out of jail. And the text says, And when he knocked on the door and the gate, the servant girl named Rhoda came and answered. She recognized Peter's voice. Because of her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. She kept on insisting it was so, and they kept saying, he's an angel. They prayed for Peter to get out of jail. He gets out of the jail. He knocks on the door, let me in. And she's like, it's Peter. Shuts the gate. Peter's like, wait a minute, this ain't working out. I'm out here. And everybody's saying, no, it couldn't be. Blessed are you that believe when you don't see. What does it take for you to believe? The simple faith of a child. We shouldn't be that skeptic, but I love the fact that Jesus will reveal himself to even to skeptics. At that level. Where they say, my Lord and my God. For Thomas... He demonstrates what Paul would have said in Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Thomas 
sees, he believes, and he confesses. That's faith. Genuine faith. My Lord and my God. And he sees and he declares it. Peter would say in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but you believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining as an outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. You're here tonight because you believe in that which you have not seen. You have faith in the Word of God, and God has revealed Himself to you in a unique way, calling you by name. John finishes this chapter with two verses and explains why he wrote this whole gospel. Therefore, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, note, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing that you may have life in his name. Jesus has revealed himself. Do you believe? Knowing most of the people in this room, I would say yes. But there's a whole lot of people that don't believe. They need to see Jesus. How are they going to see Jesus? Through you. Through you. Your testimony of faith. Whether like John, or like Peter, or like Mary, or like Thomas. Because you've seen and believed, you can reveal the truth about God, the truth about the resurrection through the Word of God to them. Take them to the Gospel of John. That's why John wrote this. It is the best evangelistic book that we can find in Scripture. It writes it all out so that you could believe. John wrote it so that you could take just his gospel and lead people into a, a true faith. Will you do it? We're going to end our, our study next week in John 21 where Jesus would appear to the disciples. We're going to talk about the restoration of Peter. Let's pray. God, we thank you. For tonight, we thank you for your word and the power of your word to change lives. Lord, our faith is not based on an empty tomb. Our faith is based on a risen Savior. Our hope is not based on some type of, of cultic belief. But it is based on the evidence that has been presented of a Lord that died on the cross, rose again three days later, and has been transforming lives. Our faith is not based on an emotion, but the power of the Holy Spirit that resides within us. And from that place we declare truth. May we declare that truth with every fiber of our being that other people will see you, Lord Jesus, and come to, to have a trust in you for their eternal life. We thank you. So stand.
living Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. Our judge and our defender suffered and crucified forgiveness is in you descended into darkness you rose in glorious life forever seated high I believe in God our Father I believe in Christ the Son I believe the Holy Spirit, our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection, that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. Jesus. 
Have a great rest of your week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.